notification. Um, there I am. Um, why don't we do this? Um, there are some new faces in here. Some of you love this. Some of you hate this. So we only do it very rarely. But uh, why don't you greet someone, introduce yourself, say who you are, say how you ended up here today, um, if the face isn't familiar to you. Freddie, you have three or four minutes. Go. All right, everybody. Well, I'm glad that you got to meet somebody or catch up with somebody. Um, I am Scott. I'm the lead pastor here at the old Jacobswell. My privilege to be with you. And we are actually finishing a series today <coughs> on the Ten Commandments. And so do you want to guess which commandment we're talking about? The Tenth. What do you know? Yeah, there you go. Um, and so actually, Mike, would you, would you add to the Scrolly Bible uh, Exodus 2017? I realize that's the one verse I didn't put in there is actually the verse that we're talking about. Here's what I will say by way of introduction, though, is there's been a couple of themes here throughout the series that I feel like are worth highlighting, one of which is that sometimes we think of the Ten Commandments and all we think of are the, are the don'ts, and this idea that the Ten Commandments are sort of this strict definition of all of the things that make God really upset and all of the things that, 
you know, naughty little boys and girls do as opposed to good people do. But we said that there's a lot more going on with the Ten Commandments. Namely, the, the two things that I would love for you to have ringing in your mind when you think of the Ten Commandments, having gone through this series, are one, that they reveal the heart of God. In fact, traditionally, the Ten Commandments aren't really called the Ten Commandments. Um, they're called the Ten Words. They're called the, the Decalogue, if you remember that from our intro. And words, especially in that ancient context, were more understood as divine communication and divine revelation about from the deity to reveal something of who that deity is. And so each of the commandments, as we've been walking through them, we've been showing how they also show us something about who, who God is, about his character, about the kind of, right, if, if you... The example that I used way early on was I always had this substitute teacher who would come in and write these certain rules on the, on the board, and the rules were, were the worst. It was like, don't smile, don't talk, you know, like no questions asked. Um, and it said something about the heart of that person. It revealed something about who they were um, given, given the laws that they set out. And, and not that there's anything wrong with laws, because there was also other substitutes who would come in and put rules on the and it would be, you know, have fun, be respectful. If you have a question, go ahead and ask it, and you'd go, oh, like, this is going to be a very different experience. And so that's one of the things that we tried to get from this was what does this reveal about the heart of God, and we'll, we'll land that also with the Ten Commandments. The, the other thing that I would love for you to have ringing in your ears, and I'm stealing this from John Scalambro, who is a pastor down the shore, who was an intern with us, who was a beloved member of Jacobswell for many years. Um, he happens to be teaching through a similar series down there, and his big theme for the series was a, a great little phrase where he said, the Ten Commandments are rules for the liberated life. Rules for the liberated life. The Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the, the classic place, they're actually in two different places, but Exodus 20 is the one that, that we're normally quoting from, actually starts with a reminder, hey, I am the God who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. That's, that's the... That's the grounding of these 10 words. That's the, that's the source of these commandments is remember that I am a God who is deeply invested in your freedom, so deep that I am the one who stretched forth my hand and actually rescued from that place of enslavement. And right there at the beginning, we have a reminder that what God is calling them to is not toward enslavement, which is sometimes how we think of morality, sometimes how we think of the life of righteousness is a kind of hem, hemming in, a kind of um, a restriction of life. Instead, God is saying, no, I'm trying to actually walk you out of a kind of slavery into a new kind of freedom defined by my way of living in the world. He's saying that, that every kind of true freedom has a kind of boundary to it and restriction to it, right? A, a ship is not merely free when it can go anywhere it wants to go. It's free when it's headed in the direction that it was actually destined for. And that's what God is doing. He's saying, I made humanity with a certain kind of purpose, with a certain kind of end goal, with a certain way that we would most flourish. But when we depart from that, what the world would define as freedom to do whatever we want, he would say, is actually a kind of re-enslavement to our desires. And desires are really what we're going to talk about here today. So here is the 10th commandment. Mike, do you have that? Exodus 20, 17. It reads like this. Look at that scroll. 
so beautiful. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray as we get into the word of God this morning. Father, we pray that by your spirit you would bring illumination to our hearts, that you would bring spirit-led insight into the truth of your word and then into how that word is meant to impact our individual and corporate life here together. So God, as we approach your word, we do it with an awareness that um, these things can't fully come to life apart from your spirit and coming, um, giving life to them and then applying them in each of our hearts. So God, guide us, um, lead us into all truth this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. In the, there's, there's a kind of, and I feel like I've over-caveated this, but, but there is a helpful way to see the Ten Commandments. The first five is being largely about our relationship with God. The second five largely being about sort of our vertical relationships with others. And one of the themes that I hope you've gotten from the second half is that all of the things that are addressed in Commandments 6 through 10 are things that we can have a tendency to see as um, sometimes bad within themselves that the scriptures have a much more nuanced view of. And so, for instance, do not kill. We talked about relationships, and we talked about the potential harm that comes in relationships through envy and through hurt and through all of these things. And the scripture's solution to that is not to run away from relationships and isolate and just be with me and God. Instead, what we said was, no, relationships, other people were given to us as, as one of God's greatest means of healing precisely those things, of enjoying who God is through his image bearer that is sitting across me horizontally, visibly present with me. And so relationships are something to be stewarded in in a specific way according to the scriptures. Same thing with do not commit adultery, right? Um, Now he goes from our relationships specifically into romantic relationships, specifically into marriage relationships, specifically into the very intimate area of sexuality. And what would be easy there is if we said, like many have throughout history, well, then maybe we should just do away with sexuality and run from it and renounce it. And certainly there is a kind of calling that the scriptures affirm um, to celibacy. But the scriptures also say, know that sexuality properly placed, properly stewarded in the life of a follower of Jesus is a good and great capital G, good thing, a gracious thing, a gift from God. So too with do not steal. We talked about how possessions, again, it's very easy to say, well, if greed gets in the way, if the desire to steal comes from the desire for more stuff, maybe we should just renounce possessions. Maybe we should be people who don't own anything. No, no, no. Christianity has a much more nuanced view of possessions and of wealth, that these things are part of why God created us. When he gave us dominion over the world, that assumed a certain kind of management, a certain kind of ownership that we would enjoy over parts of God's creation. It all comes down to how do we steward that? Do we steward that for our own gain or do we steward that in the way that God has called us to steward that? Graciously, generously, for the good of others. So too, last week as we talked about thou shalt not bear false witness. This idea that our words 
have this very unique power to them. And the scriptures are full of warnings about the unbelievable, unique power of words. But again, the solution is therefore not to say, well, then I just won't say anything. I'll never move toward anyone. No, no, because our words, that same power that can do such harm, can do such amazing beauty and blessing in the world if stewarded properly. Why do I walk through this? Because this one, I think it especially pops off the page in terms of, right, what this is talking about is, is coveting. The idea of coveting, as one author puts it, is, a, is an inner grasping after things that says, unless I have that thing, I'll be miserable. We're at the level of desire. These commandments have gotten into our bedrooms. They've gotten into our wallets. They've gotten into our relationships. They've gotten into our speech and words. Now it's gone so deep into us that it's talking about our internal desires. If you think about it, most of the other commandments and the extent to which, especially in the second half, and the extent to which we are faithful to them is observable by other people. Whether you kill or not, whether you steal or not, right? Whether you bear false witness or not. These are things that are observable. Coveting is not necessarily something that is an observable behavior because we're dealing with inner life here. And so first thing that I would say is that we have a God who cares about that part of our life. He is not merely about external behavior and external adherence to a set of codes. It's almost cliche to say that Jesus, particularly in his teaching, again and again moves towards, yeah, but what's going on in the heart? Now, I think that we as Christians can go so far with that to almost say he doesn't care about observable behavior. It's just what's going on in my heart. I know I've been a complete jerk to you. I know that I've done horrible things, but my heart... If you could see my heart, my heart is good. Okay, we don't want to make a disconnect between those two things, but we also don't want to swing the pendulum too. Well, as long as I look okay on the outside, who cares what's actually going on at the level of my desires? No, God is actually deeply interested in these things. But yet again, as I walk through each of those other commandments in the second half here, the easy move here is to say, well, then why don't I just renounce desire as a category? Maybe desires are just a bad thing. Maybe that's the whole point, is that I would become someone who can kind of squash those things. And while there are many other worldviews and religious systems that move toward that kind of renunciation of desire, we're going to see something much more nuanced as we walk through this specific commandment. Number one, the first thing that I want to say here is that God gave us our desires. In fact, at, at our most basic, essential uh, kind of nature as human beings, we are desiring beings. Here I'm thinking especially of the work of the uh, ancient North African theologian Augustine. How many of you have heard that name? Augustine, maybe you've heard of Augustine if you're sophisticated. Um, but, <laughs> right, Augustine, what, his, his incredible influence on, not just on Christianity, but really on all of modern Western thought, is the idea 
that human beings, put it this way, uh, one, one great writer, one of the great August scholars on Augustine, a guy named James K. Smith, I really recommend a, a few of his books wrestling with this idea, is that one of the ways that we actually departed from Augustine's work is in the Enlightenment, we began to have this view that human beings are primarily brains on a stick, is, is how he puts it. In other words, what matters most is what you think. And if you could just change someone's thoughts, if they could just believe the right things, if they could just have the right perspective on things, then, then that would be transformational for the person. And what the whole Enlightenment project has found is that there's actually something much deeper than what's up here. It's, it's what emanates from here. It's our base desires. That how many of us wouldn't bear witness, and by the way, Augustine is just getting this from the scriptures, how many of us wouldn't bear witness that sometimes what we believe is unbelievably, almost uh, bafflingly conquered by what we want. That yeah, you can say I believe certain things all day long, but at the end of the day, what often wins out in terms of what we do, our approach to things, what's going on inside of us, is these deeper desires. This is how God made us. God didn't see desire in us and say, uh-oh, this is going to go horribly wrong. Like so many other things, he made us desiring beings and then called us to steward that in certain ways. And like with so many other things, the human story goes horribly wrong when we steward those things wrongly for our own gain. And this jumps out right in the first chapter of the biblical story. This is Genesis 3. This is when uh, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and, and even if you're not familiar with with Christianity and scriptures, you probably vaguely know that this is how the biblical story starts. Adam and Eve in the garden, they're told not to eat of this one tree. God says, if you eat of it, um, you, will, you will surely die. Like, the, there's consequences. This is what happens, though. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, when she saw that it was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, we're, we're in the category of desire here. Her heart's doing something. She knows full well what she's been told about this tree. This tree will surely lead to your death. But her heart, her desires are evaluating very differently. Do you see that here? That it was good for food and it was delightful to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who, by the way, was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths. We've done a whole series on the opening of Genesis. I, I won't go too much into detail. What I want you to see here, though, is that it was at the level of desire that what, what precedes this scene is, is Satan saying, did God really say that? What if he's holding out on you? What is it he doesn't want you to experience by not eating of that tree? In fact, the tree is called the knowledge of good and evil, which most scholars would say, if you think about it, the knowledge of good and evil, the particular knowledge that's being talked about there is experiential knowledge. And what, what between good and evil had Adam and Eve known until this point? Good, right? If they ate of the tree, they would suddenly know what evil was. They would have a contrast to what they had known. That's what God is warning them against. All you've known is good. You want to know good and evil? Eat of that tree. 
Look at what it says she evaluates it as, though. That the truth was to be desired to make one wise. To make one wise. You know what wisdom is biblically? Wisdom is universally seen as a good thing. It's, it's the kind of knowledge that helps you navigate your way through the world in the way that God intends. God says this tree will lead you to a kind of experience of evil, a kind of experience that's the beginning of death and decay in your life. And her desires say, yeah, but what if God's withholding from me? And actually what this would do is, is this would be a helpful thing. This would bring me more alive. This would actually lead to my flourishing. And then she says, Adam, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, me too, right? Like, <laughs> just sitting there apparently, right? And he eats of it too. And then when they eat of it, look at what they learn. The experience that they have is immediately one of shame. They go, whoa, we're naked. Do you know we were naked? I didn't know we were naked, right? They experience a sense of their own brokenness. Their own disconnectedness from who they're meant to be suddenly rushes upon them. Even if you're not particularly like um, inclined toward the Christian worldview, this is so power, this has such powerful explanatory power in terms of, of our experience of desire, right? Especially for someone who does hold to a Christian worldview where, where uh, the Spirit of God gives you this sense of, of what's right and wrong in the world, and then we contradict it, right? Doesn't this sound like you and me, right? Like, this doesn't sound like however many, you know, millennia ago this is. This sounds like you this past week, doesn't it? This sounds like me, all right, I know God said that this would be bad, but what if God's withholding on me, and what if this would actually be a helpful thing for me to experience, and so I'm going to do it. Oh, no, I've done it. Oh, no, what have I done? Oh, this is horrible. What was I thinking? What could I have been thinking? I'm never doing that again. That was terrible. Now I feel my own shame. Oh, my God, I hope no one finds out that I did this. Oh, there it is again. Maybe this time, though, right? Like, Maybe this is the time that it doesn't lead to death and decay. Maybe this, right? First page of the scriptures, we watch how desire outside of God's good intentions leads to so much of what makes the human condition so overwhelming sometimes. Leads to the shame, leads to the sense of disconnectedness when we are led by our desires away from God. And yet, desire is clearly in there previous to all the consequences of the fall. Do you notice she has desires without having fallen yet, right? So desire is actually an okay thing. It's what we do with it. Welcome to the second half of the commandments. You tracking with that? But the condition after this happens becomes this. I love the way that one theologian, Peter Lightheart, puts it. Go to that next slide, Mike. Because of what happens in the fall, our souls impel us to seek satisfaction in things that we wrongly judge to be satisfying. Our souls, and, and there he's using that language, right? Like this is the best language that we've come up with to talk about that part of ourselves. Um, sort of, you can think of this as, as the spiritual part of yourself, but really, biblically, this is more the desiring part of yourself. The desiring part of ourselves impel us because of that rebellion against God, because of that disconnectedness from God, impel us to seek satisfactions in things that we wrongly judge to be satisfying. 
In other words, we are all Eve, right? Ooh, that will satisfy me. And it's my desires telling me that will satisfy me. Covetousness, um, I love, I, I think about this a lot. Pastor John Piper might be a familiar name to some of you, pastor in, in Minneapolis for many years. Is He defines covetousness as desiring something so much that I lose my joy in God. Desiring something so much that I lose my joy in God. In other words, unless I have that thing, I simply will not be satisfied in spite of the fact that I have God who is to be my satisfaction, who is to be completely satisfied. Yeah, but what about that thing that I don't have? That's covetousness. That's what's being spoken against here. That's what this commandment is warning us against. Be warned against this constant restlessness of heart. Augustine, speaking of, famously said, Oh God, our hearts are restless, until they find their rest in you. Oh God, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is uh, James. We've been looking at James a good bit because the, James is the brother of Jesus and he's often meditating on the teaching of Jesus. And here, this is a really helpful again on this category of desire. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so that's off the table. When, when there is something that allures us, when there is something that we believe that we need, it is very easy to say, well, God put it there, right? It's very easy to say that about the tree. Well, God put it there. No, 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 This is what James is saying. Can't blame God, because God actually warns us, if anything, against our temptation. So it's not God. This is not God's doing. You can't put this on him. Rather, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, think of the, the metaphor here, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So he's saying that temptation is like a lure. Any of you freshwater fishermen, right? You throw out. Your, I used to go fishing with my grandfather uh, up in North Jersey, and we never, ever, ever caught anything. And it was one of those experiences where we would sit there, and you would think you were fishing in the wrong place, but we would sit there, and other people would come, and ha, 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 they'd be having a grand old, look at my fish, and we'd be there, like, this is our 14th time here, what are we doing wrong? We would ask them what they were doing. Anyway, that's another, clearly this is a this is a part of my story that I need to process. But we never caught anything. But what we did do is we went and we tried to find the best lures, right? These little things that, that spin around when you put them in the water and that mimic little flies and that mimic different things that the fish would. And you're trying and you're trying. It's saying that's what temptation is. It's not thrown out there by God. And by the way, if it's not thrown out there by God, guess who it's thrown out there by? The same one who whispered to Eve, right? He's out there throwing a line. He's going, ooh, maybe this one is tailor-made, right? And it's saying we're like little fish. You go, oh, is that a fly? Oh, that really looks like a fly, right? And now we're flapping towards it. And it says, and then it, and then it changes the metaphor, and it makes the metaphor that temptation and desire conceive something within us. It's something that can't be seen initially, but that grows over time. 
then eventually there's a moment where that thing's got to get out. And that thing that's birthed is sin. And that thing grows in our life and becomes a constant companion of ours and ultimately leads to death. Right? It's a very dramatic switching of metaphors. But that's what he's saying here. He's saying when, when that temptation meets with desire within us and when that's tended to, it grows into something that will ultimately lead to death. One of the biggest lies that I think um, our culture tells us is that we desire what we desire because we choose to. What do I mean by that? We desire what we desire because we choose to. There are desires within us, right? some good, some bad. But the biblical view of those desires is that what matters most is which we tend to, which, which we give. In fact, I'll, I'll jump ahead. I have this later, but listen to... Um, Mike, would you go to the Romans 13 passage? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This, this, is, this is a great one, one or two sentence summary of the biblical view of desire. Is that desire is in there and we can tend to good and bad desire. We can make provision for it. In fact, this word make provision for is a fascinating word because it's almost always used of God and it's used of God's forethought. The ability of God to, in advance, um, tailor the circumstances of our life toward his ends. And it says, we can do that with our desires. We can, we can say, like, ooh, this is the way that I'm going to scheme and make sure that, that my desires are fulfilled. And it says, when you get to that point, when you're putting forethought into the tending to those wicked desires, you're in a really dangerous place because you're feeding things that will grow and that will not become fruit in your life, will become poison in your life. And one of the lies that the culture tells us is that we desire what we desire because we choose to. No, we desire what we desire because largely our culture is postured to try and get us to desire what it wants us to desire. Right? This is why social media exists and why, right? Like this is why Elon Musk pays $44 billion or whatever it was for, for Twitter is because you realize this right now, Thankfully, I feel like this is cliche, right? What's the product that people are paying for, that companies are paying for on social media? What's the product? How do they make money? It's you. It's me. We're the product. And, and, and the product exists to be sold to. The product exists for ads, right? Like this is why Instagram is no longer you following your friends. It's you following 16 boutique clothing companies that somehow look and, you know, like tend to your own style, right? Like this is, that's what ads are meant to do. And that's what the algorithm does is it gets better and better at anticipating what tends to those desires within you. Now, some of those desires are, are fairly neutral, but that constant scrolling, constant exposure to those ads, I've been thinking about this all week, y'all. Like it, it made my scrolls totally different. So I'm like, that's what's happening. I'm not choosing to desire like 
vintage Yankees apparel, right? Like, I didn't wake up in the morning and I'm like, my life would finally be complete. But you scroll by it enough, you're like, I think I do need that, right? <laughs> or whatever it is, fill in the blank, right? Your house decor, like, I think we do need granite countertops. Like, I think we do. And they're on sale Black Friday, for goodness sake, right? Like, it's tending, it's, that's, that's like all of what we are right now. Like, wake up and see it. This feels a little bit like the Matrix. Like, take the red or green pill, whichever one you're supposed to take, right? Like, open your eyes. That's what this is doing. It's making provision for the flesh. There are other people in the world that you have never met who are making provision for your flesh and who are trying to get you to see things and to meditate on things that birth desires in you that wouldn't otherwise poke through the soil. That's, that's what we're being warned against. Is sometimes this is actually out of our control. And then, we're t- and then what culture says is, yeah, but, but who you are at your essence is what you desire, right? Like that's a way in which the biblical view of human beings and cultures does in a way line up. What culture doesn't tell you is that someone else is curating your desires for you. Someone else is trying to get you to believe that you want the things, right? And now let's, let's go from silly things like home decor and apparel into, into more illicit desires that are fostered by our culture. And that then we're told, yeah, that's because that's who you are at your most essential being. What? Do you, see, do you see how subtle that is? To say, yeah, but it's in there. Well, yeah, desire's in there. But if you feed me constantly and I meditate on things that are outside of God's good purposes and designs, then yet those things will feel like the totality of who I am. Here's what's so interesting. This is what that same theologian, Peter Lightheart, uh, goes on to say. He says, what's fascinating though is the Bible doesn't teach us to master, control, or kill desire as a category. Many Eastern religions specifically do teach that, right? Like the goal is the the mastering, the killing, the quieting, the extinguishing of desire itself. Rather, biblically, our desires are to mature so that our souls, brought to life by the Spirit, move us to pursue real treasure and eternal glory with passion. I'll leave that up for just another second. Or you have one of the most well-known C.S. Lewis quotes. Um, I've used this many times and in sundry ways, but this is C.S. Lewis, the writer of Chronicles of Narnia, a great Christian thinker of the last century. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. That's a paradigm shift unto itself right there. Most of us think, man, I desire way too much. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires, realize what he's saying. We would think that that sentence would be that God finds our desires way too strong. And he wants to, no, no, he finds them too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer 
of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus said in Luke 12 these words. Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He says this needs constant tending to. Take care, be on your guard against things that make you believe that you can't be happy without them because your life is not at its most essential about the accumulation of stuff. This is Jesus 2,000 years ago, right? Pre-Western capitalist society, right? And he's saying, be really careful because there is a lie that is so universal and it's so easy to begin to believe that if I just had that next thing, if I just had nicer stuff, if I just had more stuff, if I had stuff like them, right? Because that's ultimately what the 10th commandment is saying. It's saying, don't covet other people's stuff because you will look around and, and, and the enemy of a life of joy and peace is, is comparison, right? Like even culture acknowledges that. You look around and you go, yeah, but if I had that, I would be happy, right? I feel like one of, one of the gifts that we have is so much evidence now because it's, it's popular for celebrities to get vulnerable is we have so many different, it used to be like you had two or three who would pop through the surf and be like, it's miserable out here. But now it's like a thing. It's like, are you going through a terrible time as a young pop artist? Make a documentary and put it on, you know, you're 19, you won't regret this. Um, and you put it on Netflix or whatever, and the whole world watched it, right? And, and the point of every single one of those, go watch them, is I got everything I wanted. I'm famous, I'm beautiful, I'm rich. I have every car. I have money that will never run out and I'm not happy. I can't find peace. I'm miserable. I don't know what to do. I feel trapped. And then you have Jesus thousands of years ago going, yeah, man, take care. Be on guard. All kinds of covetousness. Don't look at that life and say, man, that's got to be where it's at. Your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So what's the answer, right? What's the answer? Um, Donna read this, this beautiful passage in Philippians 4 where the Apostle Paul talks about contentment, right? If, if there's an opposite to covetousness, probably the, the closest that we could do is contentment. This idea of believing and being settled in the fact that, that you have what you need. Listen to this passage the Apostle Paul, and he says, um, he's asking, he's, he's thanking them for money and provision that they've sent to him. And he says, but don't get it twisted, right? Don't get it twisted that um, I couldn't have possibly endured without it. He's saying, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then I skip down to verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory 
in Christ Jesus. We looked at this passage in some depth when we did our Philippians series, but just a little bit of background here. Paul is writing into a culture where the idea of contentment was actually a buzzy word. It was a word that was philosophically uh, kind of a, an end goal. It, it, was, it was one of the ideals of many philosoph- philosophical schools of that time. In particular, the philosophical school of, does anybody remember? You've impressed me tremendously. Kieran remembers because he answered this last time. Yeah, Stoicism, good. Yeah, Stoicism. You've probably, you've probably heard of Stoicism. There's sort of a, a popular brand of that now. But back then, it was like it was kind of the it thing. Seneca was a really famous writer about Stoicism. Stoicism is having a moment right now in our culture. Um, the Daily Stoic is one of the most watched YouTube channels in the world and uh, basically just picking up on Seneca's philosophy. And one of, the, one of if not the ideal of that, of that school was contentment. And actually, the word contentment the, the word that's used here in this text, in, in what Paul is saying, is the word self-sufficiency. Is, is the idea of, and, and probably this resonates if you even have a vague notion of what stoicism is, right? When we say that someone is stoic, what's the image that comes into your mind? Yeah, Toby just did. It's kind of like, right? Like, no matter what happens, that's the idea of stoicism. No matter what comes, it believed that there were these fates, capital F, that just kind of ran the world, and it was a bit chaotic, and the goal was to not let the fates win by, by remaining who you are, by remaining with an inward sense of sturdiness, regardless of surrounding circumstances. That was the ideal. And Paul says, oh yeah, I've learned that. I've learned how to do that, whether I'm in tremendous financial need or whether I have a lot. What I love here is he actually says, I had to learn how to abound. Do you know you have to learn how to abound? When things are going well, when you do have enough, there is just as much temptation to covetousness, right? That lie of a little bit more that we talked about a couple weeks ago, it'll meet you at the bottom and it'll meet you at the top. It just will. But he's saying, I had to learn how to do this. What's so interesting about what he does here is what Paul does constantly in Philippians is he flips the buzzy words of their culture on their head by seeing them from a distinctly Christian point of view. So he says, you know how I learned to be self-sufficient? I learned it by being completely dependent on another. That's the context of this very famous verse, right? We talked about this as, this is what athletes put on their eye black. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what does that mean? We're going to win, right? Like I'm going to, you know, jump higher than I ever have before. I'm going to score a bunch of points, right? I can do all things becomes defined as the all things there is. All the things that I already preset that I wanted to do and that would make me happy, Jesus will give those to me. That's a false gospel, right? That's, that's like the ultimate misuse of this verse. There's now a, a mug going around that says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, right? Um, that's, that's this verse, right? And, and we said back when we talked through this that this is why context matters in the scriptures. What are the all things that Paul is saying he can do through Christ? The all things is all, in all the circumstances of life, I can actually know what it is to be content. He takes self-sufficiency and flips it on his head by saying, you know how I'm self-sufficient? Through him, through another, through connectedness to Jesus. Here's what Paul says uh, actually earlier in that same chapter. Might go to Philippians, what is that, 4 8. It's two down from there. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about, meditate on these things. Let me, let me talk you through some practicalities here. What Paul is saying is that the way to get out of this endless cycle of others curating your desires, of others tending desires that wouldn't have even burst through the soil unless they watered them and shed light on them and constantly exposed you to them, is he says, you've got to learn what it looks like to meditate on other things, namely the things that I value. You've got to learn what it's like to meditate on, on others-centeredness. You've got to learn what it looks like to, to meditate on the life of purity that I've actually laid out as the true life of human flourishing. You've got to set your eyes. You've got to set your attention. You've got to set your heart toward other things. You've got to look at those things again and again and again, right? It, it, the answer to doom scrolling and all of these ads again and again is you've got to look at something else, right? Like to get really practical, at some point we've got to get off our phones and we've got to get with Jesus and his word and set our minds on other things so that new desires can be tended to, so that those things can be watered and given sun and suddenly find themselves bursting through the soil. And what we find is instead of bringing up poison through the soil of our hearts, life and fruitfulness comes from it. I'll give you two practices that I think are really important to land this, right? Because we just had Thanksgiving, and so hopefully you can see the very obvious connectedness between covetousness and contentment as its opposite, and how gratitude feeds into contentment, right? One of the ways to get away from, I'm not going to be happy until I have that, is to reset your mind on what you've already been given. And here I'm talking about the deepest spiritual realities that you've been given. Say, God, I can't believe that I've been rescued, that I've been truly forgiven, that I'm a real son or daughter of yours that I have a, a bright eternal future and hope regardless of what I do in this life. God, thank you that you've made me new and that you see me, that you've welcomed me in, that you relate to me by your spirit. But I'm also talking about even more practically, saying, God, thank you for the life that you've given me. Thank you for the stuff that you've given me. Thank you for the job that you've given me. Right here I think of <laughs> our, uh, our children who aren't uh, my my Eldest isn't here today, so, so I can say this. Um, sorry, Dre. But, right, like, you see covetousness in kids, right? Like, it's just there. That idea of, like, I won't be happy until I have the next thing. You know, one of the most helpful practices that I've watched my wife do with our boys is we have this playroom. I almost put a picture of it up, but I didn't want to mortify you. Um, we have this playroom, and, right, it's an embarrassment of riches for a kid, right? Like, um, no human being on the planet needs the number of Nerf guns that for some reason we possess. If they ever go up in value like Bitcoin or whatever, like we're set. Like the Joneses will be good if Nerf guns for some reason, right? Like we have Nerf guns galore and we have Lego and we have all this different stuff, right? And yet, it's very easy for our boys to fall into, but I need the new, you know, Roblox plushie or whatever. And you're like, that? Okay. Um, but I get it, right? One of the most helpful things that, that Sarah will do from time to time is to say, Okay, I've had it, kind of. Like, go in the toy room and look at what you have 
and you've got to play with what you have. And more often than not, right, like they'll go in there and they'll come out with kind of like, a, <laughs> we forgot that we actually have, you know, three Lego sets we haven't even made yet. So that's what we're going to do. Okay. And they kind of go back in, right? And you can see this sudden awareness of, man, I just forgot what I had. I just forgot what I already had. And, and what culture and what our own dumb hearts so often tell us is, no, new, 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 next, next, next. What's the new thing? What's the next thing? Shiny, glimmery, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe that'll make me wise. Maybe that's where it's at. And God is going, stop. Your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Look at what you've been given, right? And there's a kind of, there's a kind of inventory that sets the heart of my boys right that they take. Think that there's a kind of inventory that the follower of Jesus needs to more regularly take in order to reset the heart. And a very simple practice that someone pointed me to probably two, three years ago now is when we were doing spiritual uh, discipleship, like way back in the day, is this simple, this simple exercise where at the end of the day, I'm a night person, so a lot of my like stuff, imperfectly, inconsistently, but, but when, when I'm actually sort of with the Lord is almost always late at night, and one of the practices that someone said is if you're a night person especially, a great practice to do is just walk back through your day in prayer. Say, God, thanks that, you know, I got woken up by my kid jumping on me and wanting to cuddle with me for a while. Thank you that, you know, um, that things went well with, you know, an appointment that our son had. Thank you that, oh yeah, that staff meeting, we, we had really sweet laughter during our staff. And it's, it's inventory. And what it does to my heart because sometimes at night is when the heart can kind of like, all right, like maybe, you know, maybe I can buy something and, and I'll get that little dopamine hit, right? Like, like a lot of this just comes down to neuroscience. Part of the power of neuroscience is you realize like a lot of this is just our bodies think dopamine is it and dopamine hits. And then you know what the, the, what the dark side of dopamine is, is it's brutal on the way down. But we'll take that dopamine hit, right? Like some of this is Jesus just going like, yeah, I knew that 2,000 years ago, right? Like the dopamine ain't it, right? Like there's a deeper joy that comes in silence and in stillness, and in that kind of inventory back through that. And you would be stunned even after. And look, we've had a hard year, and we've had really hard days, and like even the last couple days, right? Like I'm in it with some of you who are going through your first holidays without a loved one. And even in that place, going back through a day and just taking inventory, saying, yeah, but that was really sweet. Yeah, but that was good. And that was good. Can reset the heart and quiet that covetousness and set your minds on what is good and excellent and pure and, and actually true and it can feel like water and sustenance on the human heart. And you can almost feel those, those desires that ultimately lead to death and shame and busyness and restlessness, right, be replaced by things that actually lead to what God provides. I, I love the end of this passage where he says, Mike, would you go back to the other Philippians 4? I love this where he basically he says, yeah, continue to be generous, continue to do the things that I'm calling you to. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What he's getting at here is when we actually invest ourselves in the things that God calls us to, there is a supply, there is a sufficiency that comes in our life. And the idea here is not that God outspends the world. It's that God has currency that the world does not have access to. You hear what I'm saying? 
It's not that God outspends the world. Actually, if you're with God, right, this is, this is what's so insipid, uh, insidious, what does insipid mean? Insidious about the prosperity gospel is this idea that God outspends the world. You come in here and God's going to, whoa, whoa, God literally says life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Why would the gospel be a promise of the abundance of possessions, right? Like, yeah, right? Instead, but what does a verse like this mean if it doesn't mean that? And my God will supply every need of yours, what? According to his riches in Christ Jesus. There are riches, there is currency, there is supply that is available in Christ Jesus that is available nowhere else, right? This is not God outspending the world. It's giving you things that only he can give you. And he's saying, lean into that kind of currency. Because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What it consists in is the nearness and the abundance of God's presence in our life, right? This is why, last passage, this is why you have Jesus saying things like this, right? And I could have just as easily pulled from the story that the name of our church comes from. Listen to Jesus. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So this is him, again, going back to the story of Moses. We said that Jesus does this in various ways. He's a second and better Moses. He's talking about the story of man in the wilderness. The people are desperate. They're hungry. They need food. And God begins to provide for them with the manna. And, and Jesus says, this is what God does. He provides exactly what you need. For the bread of God who is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always, right? Like this is very similar to the woman's response. If you know the story of Jacob's well, she says, give me this living water, sir, give me this living water. They say, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, connectedness to me is what life consists in, and it's what you're actually hungry and thirsty for. That's what you're hungry and thirsty for. It's not more stuff. It's not more status. It's not a better job. It's not your neighbor's wife. It's not your neighbor's car. It's not your neighbor's wealth. What you're actually hungry for, those are false substitutes for what you actually were made to most deeply crave because you were made to crave. And God is saying, get the hint. That craving that is given to you by me that is not satisfied in the pursuit of 6,000 other things, it's there for a reason, right? There's another great C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis said, if I am hungry, then there is an assumption that there's such a thing as bread and food that's in the world. If I am hungry and thirsty at a soul level, one can only assume that I was made for something beyond what this world provides, in fact, I was maybe made for, if, if there is a desire in me, this is exactly what Lewis says, there's a desire in me that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is I was made for another world. That I was made for another being. Is I was made not to be satisfied by this world. Contentment, taking inventory, gratitude for God, right, is one practice that I would commend to you. But this is why irreducibly, so much of the Christian life comes down to, are you or are you not abiding in Jesus? Is there any connectedness to Jesus? If you are going on a long journey through a desert and somebody says, do you have what you need? And you say, yes, I have what I need. I have food and I have water. And then at no point in time do you consume that food and water. 
and you get to the end and you wonder, I thought I had what I needed. You didn't need it. You didn't drink it. Just after this passage, Jesus says one of the weirdest things he ever says. He says, but you got to eat me. He got a drink of me. And his disciples go, that was really weird, Jesus. Like, that's a weird teaching. What's he getting at? He's saying, at some point, you have to consume relationship with me. You can't leave me in your backpack and then blame the provision that has been given for you. You've got to engage that somehow, right? And look, here's what's beautiful about the Christian life. It can start so simple, right? Like we make, I think for too long, we, we as, as skeptical Western evangelicals have made fun of things like quiet times. It's like, well, what else is there to stay connected to Jesus? You got to have something, you got to have some rhythm in your life, right? Like, one of the blessings of growing and maturing in faith, right? Like that theologian says that our desires are meant to mature is one of the things that matures, that desire maturing in you is you feel the lack of connectedness to Jesus more over time. The more connected you become to Jesus, you feel that lack more. You know why? Because your desires are changing. Because you're, to, to use a phrase, you're acquiring a taste for what actually satisfies. And so when you don't have it, right, like at some point you're supposed to grow out of loving McDonald's, right? Like that's just a truism of life, right? Like some of you are very offended by that. But, but right, in, in, the, in the analogy, right, right, there's a maturing of our desires that's meant to happen where we go, yeah, once a Sunday ain't enough. It's not enough. It doesn't do it for me anymore. And don't despair of that and say, well, maybe God isn't good anymore. No, you just need more of him because your desires are maturing. And so you've got to find a way. It's what we're trying to do in these discipleship courses is we're trying to give you options to say what, what might connect in this. Maybe it just looks like you put on worship in the middle of the day and allow that to flood over you. Whatever's true, whatever's good, whatever's no. Let me set my mind on that, right? Maybe it is a time alone with the word. Maybe it's just starting a practice like I did. Honestly, the most consistency that I've ever experienced in my own walk with Jesus came from that practice from saying, at the end of the day, what keeps me from just closing my eyes for a little bit and saying, all right, let me walk back through my day. And so often that drives me to more because I open my eyes and you know what? Honestly, that's not enough now. I say, you know what? I, I need a little of God's word to speak over me. And then sometimes it's like, man, I, 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 need a good, I need a good worship song, right? Every now and then my kids will wake up and walk out and I'm out there and the music is blaring. And they're like, what are you doing, right? And it's like, because sometimes I, I just need a, a different way of connection, right? And look, I do this inconsistently. I don't do this perfectly. A lot of nights, right? I'm stuffing McDonald's in my face and I'm going, why does my stomach hurt, right? Spiritually, right? Metaphorically, right? And it's like, well, well, yeah, because, because I'm, I'm watering the wrong kinds of desires. But God wants to change that part of you, right? He is interested in that endless strive. This is why Jesus put his body on the line. He said, my work of salvation has to go deep enough to actually influence your desires. This is why there is no salvation apart from the giving of the spirit that Jesus makes possible in his death. He makes you a new being, a new vessel, worthy of housing the very presence of God. And it's an inside out kind of transformation that Jesus won for us on the cross. Nothing less. There's such hope. Father God, thank you for these 10 words. Thank you for what they reveal about your heart, God. Thank you for what they show us about what life lived and the new freedom that you have won for us in Christ actually looks like. 
God, I pray that we would be people who obey from hearts that desire more of you. And God, that that would be evident even as we come to this table this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.